0: Positive drug tests have hit a two-decade high, mostly driven by an increase in positive marijuana tests. A couple of things are at play here. First, attitudes about marijuana are changing as more states move to legalize recreational use. And secondly, due to labor shortages, many businesses loosen drug screening policies to open themselves up to a wider pool of applicants. For more on all this, we'll speak to Will Fewer, reporter... wall street journal
1: the rate of people who are testing positive for general various drugs last year hit a two decade high and for marijuana that was actually an all-time high so more people are testing positive for marijuana than ever before more workers i should say really and what we're seeing at the same time is that fewer companies are actually testing their employees for marijuana uh, which isn't exactly surprising considering that more states are legalizing it Uh, maybe even culturally in many states it's becoming Kind of less of a taboo drug. Maybe they're okay with employees using marijuana as long as they're not, you know, showing up to work inhibited. And also, of course, we had this labor shortage last year, which was really severe in various industries. And what we saw many companies do is effectively look at what was happening and they made a risk-based assessment where they said, you know what, we are going to eliminate a requirement that you know we are we're going to test everybody for marijuana so that we can broaden our labor pool a little bit and try to get some more workers to fill these slots.
0: Yeah, just to uh, put a few more numbers on there. So, the people that were testing positive for marijuana, so in 2017, since 2017, the the number has gone up 50%, just to show that. And uh, the uh, states that have legalized marijuana for recreational use grew to 18 from eight. So, the change is happening across states, uh, in states across the country. And uh, some of the people you spoke to said, A lot of companies probably won't go back. Let's say the labor market kind of evens itself out. People are getting jobs and and whatnot, and you can kind of go back to those restrictions that they had. A lot of companies probably won't be doing that.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'll speak uh, specifically to Michigan. I I spoke with one really interesting staffing agency there in the Detroit area. They work mostly with manufacturers that supply the big three car makers, glass suppliers and and other companies of the sort. And yeah, they said that even though Michigan legalized recreational use of marijuana back in 2018, until the pandemic, many of the companies they worked with were really resistant towards the idea of eliminating the marijuana uh, screen. But then, you know, just in the last 12 months or so, the staffing agency went to those companies and said, look, we cannot find workers unless you eliminate the drug test. And that's what they did. They didn't really have a choice in the matter. And and that staffing agency, they told me they don't see at all any chance. Of companies now going back, and they see even other opportunities for for company, those companies to loosen the restrictions, so to speak. They spoke about, for example, uh, you know potentially companies hiring formerly incarcerated citizens, who companies that wouldn't have done that before the pandemic.
0: You you mentioned in the article too that marijuana use has become so casual that I guess some of these recruiters and and whatnot saying people are showing up potential workers are showing up and they already smell like it beforehand uh you know maybe yeah. probably, you know maybe smoking vapes on the site as well think different things like that so I mean that could be a problem I mean you I don't think you should be right. showing up like that you want to put your uh best foot forward but that's how commonplace it's been in a lot of areas
1: yeah so you know the staffing agency they did acknowledge that maybe it's almost gotten too casual in recent months where especially among young people in their early 20s or so they don't necessarily understand that, okay, companies are loosening up and they're now okay with having people who maybe use recreational marijuana in their free time. But that doesn't mean that you can show up to a job interview smelling like weed <laughs> right. or, or smoking it on your lunch break.
0: Now, a lot of this is specifically focused on marijuana. Other illicit drugs, really, those things mm-hmm. haven't been relaxed. So I don't want people to get the wrong idea. This is right. marijuana. Uh, you know, we're talking about the changing landscape that's been happening, right? A lot of states. Are uh, legalizing recreational marijuana. So it's kind of in this whole thing that we're talking about it. But still, right, there are a lot of companies that might not go back to some of those old policies, but there's still a lot that don't agree. And, and, you know, it depends on what the job is, right? If you're handling uh, heavy machinery, obviously that's going to be a concern. Or uh, you mentioned a lot of financial services or federally regulated businesses, you know, aren't going back that way.
1: Yeah, so just to be clear, right, there are certain positions that regardless of who your employer is, even if it's a private company, are regulated by the federal government at that level. And so that's positions like forklift operator, for example, or interstate truck drivers. They are regulated by the federal government. And for those positions, you would have to pass a drug test that includes a THC screening.
0: Will, you a reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Inflation continues to be at a 40-year high, and it's a problem with a not-so-easy solution. Part of the problem is that not everyone agrees on the absolute causes, so the fixes are also not agreed upon. Most can agree that supply chain issues, rising oil prices, and shifting consumer demands are all contributors. But while the Fed and the White House try to help, they are limited in what they can do. For more on this complicated issue, we'll speak to Emily Stewart, senior correspondent at Vox.
2: Yeah, I do think in terms of the causes, You know, it's tricky. There is some stuff that people really have, like, a pretty decent consensus on, as you mentioned. Like, we all know, like, the supply chain stuff has been a problem for quite some time. We know that the economy has just been a little bit wonky in terms of demand. You know, the U.S. is a service-based economy, right? During the pandemic, it's become much more goods-focused, so people have a lot of money to spend on goods, but they're having a hard time getting those goods. And when they get them, you know, maybe they're a little bit pricier. We're seeing that in cars, for example, a lot. Both new and used cars are... Very expensive now, because if you have a newer used car to sell, you can sell it for a lot of money if you want, because a lot of people want to buy. You know, there's some other stuff that's just going on that's kind of outside of the United States, obviously. We have Russia's war on Ukraine. That is going to push up prices even more. As COVID hits China hard, that's going to cause supply chain issues. So it's a lot of things that are going on, which then, of course, gets to why it's so hard to fix this stuff, because a lot of it's hard problems. To fix, then it's a lot of problems
0: to fix. Yeah, there was a recent NBC News poll where President Biden's ratings were going down, especially when it comes to handling of the economy and inflation. And part of the problem is, you know, to some of the things that you just mentioned, a lot of it is kind of out of our hands in that sense. There's little limited things, let's say, that the Fed can do or the White House can do to just bring prices down right away. It's all these external factors, this global economy that we live and operate in now. And that's why things take time. And there, you, we just can't raise the interest rate, which we've done already, right? And it's going to change everything right away.
2: Right. Some of this stuff is going to take some time to shake itself out. You know, one person that I talked to joked with me that if the White House had a button to stop inflation, they would. You know, they know that it's bad and that it bothers people. But they're doing kind of what they can do. You know, one economist I talked to said, listen, like, a good thing that the White House is doing is that they're kind of leveling with people. They're like, hey, this sucks. We know you're going to be here for a while. And, you know, we do have the Fed starting to raise interest rates, but that's going to take time. And, and, you know, it's also important to remember that, again, like you said, it's stuff that's outside of the United States is controlled. The U.S. has nothing to no say in what happens in China. The U.S. has made the decision to, in other countries to enact sanctions against Russia that's going to make things, you know, worse. That's a decision that we've made and kind of a trade-off that the government thinks is worth it. But you also can't control that Russia has, has invaded Ukraine, obviously. Um, and some of this stuff is going to take time. You know, a lot of people that I talked to also said, maybe this is a moment to really take a look at how our supply chains work and how our infrastructure works and how our economy works and make some investments that we've needed to make for a long time, you know, a lot of this was precarious before the pandemic hit. And we've seen that there's much precarity across the economy. So maybe in a different world or you know, maybe in the future, there will be some investments made so that if there is another pandemic or when there are disruptions, things like that, that the situation wouldn't be so dire.
0: We are kind of going through this recovery after the pandemic and the economy is doing kind of good. That's why it's so weird to be talking about all of this. People do have extra money. And all because of stimulus payments. People suggest that could also be causing the inflation. But that's one thing that's so weird about it the economy is doing okay. It's just all this other stuff is still keeping prices high.
2: Right. And it's hard to tell people not to feel how they feel. Like inflation sucks. I live a person who lives in the world. I go to the grocery store, I go to a restaurant, and it's like, wait a minute, this did not used to be like this. So it's understandable, but I think it's also important to remember, you know, the economy is much better than it was a couple of years ago. Unemployment is getting much better, obviously, than it was two years ago. And some of this is just a symptom of the economy being better. You know, people do have more money to spend, like you said, because of stimulus checks, also because people weren't spending money a year or two ago. I wasn't going to restaurants. Now I am again. Some of stuff is going to shake itself out, but it's just not a satisfying answer, obviously.
0: Emily Stewart, senior correspondent at Vox, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks
0: for having me. Finally for this week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed the controversial Parental Rights in Education bill, known to opponents as a don't-say-gay bill. One of the key stories that influenced the formation of the bill is a lawsuit by January Littlejohn and her husband, against Leon County schools, where they claim that school officials helped their child transition to a different gender without keeping them informed. For more on this lawsuit, we'll speak to Andrew Atterbury, Florida education reporter at Politico.
3: That lawsuit, it came up time and time again as the bill, the parental rights education bill, or don't say gay is what it's been called. By the way, this is a side note. Re- Republicans in Florida absolutely hate that. They hate that name. Uh, I kind of joke around and say it's like the, it's the don't say, don't say gay bill, because if, even if, like, if you ask, uh, <laughs> like, if you ask Governor DeSantis, you ask uh, the Speaker Chris Sprouls in the House. If you ask them a question and say, don't say gay, they'll pretty much cut you off right there and say, and you, I've seen the governor do this multiple times. So cut them off and say, does it, does it say that in the bill? Does it say don't say yeah. gay? So that is something that's it's really, that is like a, just a perfect example of how this is such a flashpoint. Even that name has just caused such a, a big issue. Uh, but, but back to your question. So the lawsuit that is involved with, uh, with Ms., Mrs. January Littlejohn, it kept coming up as this bill uh, arose in the legislature for each hearing. And, and Mrs. Littlejohn also testified as well and told her story. It sounded like it would be it was almost like the perfect example of, of why this bill would, would be needed, according to Republicans. And after session, I sat down and actually had more time to read into these lawsuits and, and learn more about them. And it, and it really is an example for everything that Republicans in are trying to do as far as like parental rights. If you read the lawsuit, the, the parents claim that they're they like you said, they're basically kept in the dark about decisions involving their child's gender identity and that like some of these decisions were made behind their back and they didn't get told about it. And at the center of that as well are these local student support guides that have that have some rules in them that the parents didn't like, and these the lawyers also have targeted. And then on top of that, lawmakers also learned about these rules and didn't like them. And that directly, it sounds like that directly is what led to them crafting the legislation as it as is presented now.
0: It actually has. It gets pretty complicated with all that's going on, and you know why. Things progress, they did. And you you did mention those guides that kind of talk about how teachers should handle these conversations with students. And, and really, it, it seems like on the face of it, you know, guides to help teachers just really navigate these complicated, sensitive issues with students. Uh, you know, some of the stuff that said you shouldn't out the child to their parents uh, mm-hmm. for fear of retaliation from the parents. You just don't know how they're going to react, certain things like that. And so in that sense, it does seem like you're keeping the conversation away from the parents. So tell us a little bit about that, because that that figures in pretty heavily, like you mentioned.
3: That hits hits on a point that Democrats made throughout the process of this bill coming up. They argued that not all parents would be supportive of their children if they came out as non-binary or gay or anything else. And that they argued that if you do this, then you will out some kids to their parents and it might put them in a very bad situation. Like, Like some of these guys even mentioned, I think one guy even says, if you out them, you could literally make them homeless which is a point that the Democrats made throughout session. And I think data would, would show that, that that is possible, that could happen. But at the same time, in Florida, under Republicans, including Governor DeSantis, that just does not fly with their stance on parental rights. Right now in Florida, Republicans, and when it comes to education, they're, they're putting that in the front. Everything is about parental rights, giving parents the power to help their kids, to know what's going on, in education, whether it's this bill, the parental rights education or don't say gay bill, there was a bill about transparency in what's, what kids are reading in school, what books are available in school, trying to get more attention on that. There was a, a bill restricting what, how, how race can be taught, how race can be discussed in like uh, bias trainings from, from employers. So it all kind of fits in with trying to figure out how you can give more authority to parents yeah. and also kind of keep a closer eye on what kids are learning.
0: Yeah, for I mean Republicans see this as a winning issue, especially coming up into the midterms. You know, we had the governor's race in Virginia, a parents' rights in schools was was a huge issue then and uh, the Republican won in that race. So they see this as something that they can really hang their hat on. And uh, and, and you know, the bill is titled Parental Rights in Education. So what does the bill do specifically? Cuz it talks it has to do with uh, a lot with uh, kindergarten through third graders. And,
3: that, and that's the thing. This bill has, I think, has two real, real important provisions, and one of them has gotten way more attention than the other. And that's the point you touched on. It says that schools can't teach, they can't, you know, they can't have lessons around gender identity and sexual orientation for kindergarten or third grade. People have been really upset by that, and it's been a really divisive thing because if you if you just look at the language, you probably say, okay, that seems pretty standard. Of course, though, what a lot of people argue is that this isn't being taught in schools now anyway. So the bill goes further to say that uh, you can't teach about gender or identity or sexual orientation above third grade uh, unless it's like age appropriate, which which is another kind of vague term in the bill that's given people a lot of heartburn. They think that the way that it's written in that language specifically would have like a chilling effect on people uh, mentioning anything about their families if they were LGBTQ or even like they're telling their own stories about that kind of thing. So that has given a lot of people issue. But of course, Republicans point to the, the language that seems if you just break the language down by itself, it seems pretty non-controversial. That's their big point is that how can you say this is bad? Like, and they try to flip any, any defense or any argument. They try to flip it right back on people trying to make it.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about January Little John and and her lawsuit against the school district in there and and what was happening what was happening with their specific thing because uh, I guess they came to find out later that uh, I guess some administrators counselors or whatever were meeting with the child for some weeks trying to talk to them more about how they felt.
3: Sure, and, and it goes back to parental rights. In this case, the, the parents they believed that it was their right. And at this point, they they were saying like you said they. They weren't totally on board yet with with changing with the student changing their name this is a thirteen year old at the time in a middle school changing their name and perhaps changing their gender identity and they they talked about it at home and they talked about it going into like the next school year and they said that they didn't want them to change all that stuff officially at school they weren't they weren't sure about it in the lawsuits what they said but then after after school one day they had a conversation and learned that there was a, like a, a gender transition plan they were working on for the students uh, that the parents had no, had no idea about. And that is the crux of that case, and it's, it's all tied back to these uh, support plans. But there's another case that um, the same lawyer is working on in Clay County, which is a, which is a similar, almost not, not exactly the same, but, but a similar thing where parents were, according to these lawsuits, kept in the dark about these, these nuggets of information that, about their child's gender identity. And there's also and so there are also similar lawsuits in other states as well. So this is something that that you're starting to see more and more in the courts, people claiming that decisions about like gender orientation and identity are being made without parents really knowing and that schools are kind of unilaterally stepping in as like de facto parents. Or as one lawmaker said in arguing in favor of the bill, he said, you know, children aren't wards of the state. Basically, you know, parents are the ones that need to have these rights, not us.
0: I mean, it's a a very complicated issue and and it's going to be going on for some time. The trial for this specific lawsuit from the Little Johns isn't even going to happen until next year. So the conversation will be ongoing through all of this. And I know, uh, you know, the child is a minor. They're obviously shielded in a lot of the stuff. Do we have any sense of if this was helpful to the child, these conversations they were having with,
3: with the school? There's so many things that are unknown and so many moving parts. And one thing that was also interesting about this Leon case, like you said, the facts are going to be found out through the courts, not anytime soon, though. But even the school districts, the school districts and, and people who are embattled in, in lawsuits, they don't usually want to comment on them. But even the school district yesterday, they even they, they kind of pushed back on what, what on the lawsuit, what it said. And they said that the the claims in the lawsuit aren't exactly how things went down. So they're, they're really they kind of they're trying to defend themselves and say this isn't being painted 100% accurately in, in this lawsuit. So it's going to be really interesting. It doesn't sound like, I mean, they, so the, the school district did try to get it thrown out, but it, it didn't work. So this is going to be going to trial at some point unless unless they settle. Like th- So what they said is that they suggested that the parents sent emails that said, well, you know, you guys can take the lead on this or do whatever you think is best, according to these emails that the, the school district said. So it kind of makes this even
0: more tangled. Andrew Atterbury, Florida education reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Hey, uh, thanks for having
0: me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.